Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Winder, and thanks for tuning in to another podcast of Beyond Everything Radio. And as always, I have a question for you. Does your religion teach about the wrath of God? What if religion has been teaching it wrong? In today's podcast and post, we continue our series in Romans with a look at verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1. Religion's big threat is that if a person sins or doesn't pick the right team, they will face the wrath of God. But Paul says something quite different. Join me now as Paul frees everyone from the wrong view of wrath as we learn that wrath is not behavioral, it's ontological. Hello, everybody. Yeah, thank you so much for coming back. And man, I mean that. I'm always thrilled when you guys are coming. And I know that new folks are joining every week. You're hearing about me from work or from the mountain bike team or from the internet or some other place or a friend told you about this or you were in a theological discussion with somebody and they said, hey, you need to listen to this or however you found it. Man, welcome. I I mean that. I really want to welcome you to being here. Now, you, you might look at the way I advertise or talk about things or you might read a a description of a podcast or some of the things on my website and you might think, gosh, I, I'm not really into religious stuff. I, I, I'm not really aligned there. I, I don't think this is my cup of tea. I want to ask you to just consider some of this. I am not going to try and convert you. I am not going to try and trap you in some religion or some cult or give you a thing. Uh, or a chore, or make you give up your weekend. Um, This has nothing to do with any of that. This is actually the extraction from the freedom from all of this. And so what I'm sharing with you through all of these Bible studies is the freedom from religion, the freedom from institutional power and its overreach into your life and how to find Uh, your true center in God apart from religion, or if you really want to keep your religious structure, you are free to do so in faith. So this is not what you probably think it is. And as a result, be prepared to learn. So folks, we are doing a deep dive Uh, through the book of Romans, one of my favorite books, and it is a biggie. It's weighty. It's it's loaded with $10 seminary terms, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But it is certainly a book that when you read it in the English, you are disappointed or you are set up because each tradition creates a translation that shapes those words to fit the tradition and that what we're doing in this episode or not this this episode but this series is to do the best I can to not shape it into a particular view but to draw a view that comes from the text as much as possible I get it I have my own biases they're there but I can tell you this one thing that'll help you is this idea of ontological. Now, I used it in my introduction. It just means 
identity. It just means your state of being, your, your existence, right? And we have a world that's confused about who they are. People thinking they're cats or a different gender or that they are their sexual identity or that they are their race or that their income or their job or all these things. It's all a case of mistaken identity. And so if you get ontological reality wrong, everything goes off the rails. That's the essence of today's chapter that we're going to be diving into. So it's the uh, third installment of our series in Rome, and I call it All Are Given Over. It's podcast number 422. So Paul's letter to the Romans, if you are familiar with it, is a powder keg for the modern reader. And while I'm not going to read through every verse and chapter and all that that's here, I'm asking you to just basically go and read it for yourself. And when you do, you're going to read it in an English translation. And when you do, it's going to take you in directions because of the way they craft the words, the choices they make with the words. And so I'm going to try and free us from that by really using the Greek as the the foundation. But instead of going line by line, letter by letter, because that is how you end up having a 25-year study on the book of Romans, um, I'm actually going to take it section by section. And each section has an overall theme that Paul substantiates with the text. So I'm going to really focus on the theme But I'm asking you to trust that I have delved into the text. And so we will highlight and punctuate, kind of go deep on some of those places, but then remain thematically aligned the rest of it. And that'll help us go through this faster and I think give us more clarity. But what you've probably realized in your life, whether you come from a religious background or other, is that fundamentalism has not always wielded the Bible correctly. It has used the Bible as a bludgeoning tool primarily against homosexuality. I mean, you go to a modern LGBTQA person and the Bible is viewed as something hostile by the the large margin of those people. Why? Well, because we've had a lot of people thumping their Bible saying God hates, you know, homosexuals or or he loves the person but he hates the sin or we've got all these really weird ways of trying to balance it and you've got some pastors who refuse in their fidelity to their fundamentalism which is basically their interpretation of the bible it's not that they i mean they do believe the bible is the word of god but they more than that they believe that it's their interpretation of the bible that's the word of god and therefore they hold such fidelity to it that they don't care about anybody who disagrees they simply say this is how it is and if you disagree well that's on you god says this you know uh and that puts everybody on defense mode it makes the pastor a jerk right we don't like that it's it's actually not a very skilled or loving person who's wielding this amazing thing, which is the word of God. On the other side, you have people who just say, I'm turning loose of the word of God. I'm not 
teaching it. I'm not going to re- go over. I'm not even going to touch that stuff. It's, you know, just stay in the loving parts. Let's stay in the friendly parts and let's be more culturally relevant. And so the discussion is kind of varied in our culture. And now you have teams on the teams and the teams within the teams. And it's a mess. And here's the problem. We've manipulated a square peg of God's wrath and judgment into a round hole of religion's threatening rhetoric for outsiders. And it's all insiders versus outsiders. So that's why I spent the first couple installments showing you that Paul is, is it's bringing it to all comers. That was laid out very early in his thing that this letter that was written to Rome is not unlike a, a, a Super Bowl commercial. Like there's a whole diverse audience that's listening. Okay, so we that's the framework that we find ourselves in today. Right. And when the Sam Harris's of the world justify a claim that the Bible is antiquated, maybe you feel this way. Maybe the Bible's irrelevant. Maybe that those who uphold the Bible engage in hate speech or or are racist or homophobic or xenophobic or all the other phobics and threats and and draconian or whatever it is that we now have in our world where it's anybody who subscribes to the Bible must be an idiot. They're anti-science. They're whatever. Whenever that happens, Romans is often a book to which they turn to say, see, those people are weird. And they're not entirely wrong. And that's my conclusion is that we're kind of weird because we got it wrong. And I want to try and get it more right. Now, yes, I know this passage. If you know your Bible, these verses, they speak about homosexuality. But I have addressed homosexuality at length in a series I did back in 2015. Just click on the link in my pod, in my blog uh, or go onto my website and look it up. You can get, you know, a lot of content out there and actually get a real, true, biblical perspective of the subject, and then you can consider it. But I, I, I just point you there so that nobody here accuses me of saying that I'm just glossing over that subject. I'm not. It's simply that homosexuality is not Paul's main point here. And so it cannot be my main point here either. So as a biblical scholar, my goal is to hold fidelity to Paul's message as best I can. I'm not perfect. I got biases. I'm, you know, I'm not the greatest scholar in the world, but I can tell you this. I haven't taken this lightly. And I really do think I have a clear and contemporary application here for everybody. And I can take everybody's denomination and tradition and different religion and irreligion. And I can pull you all together into the same crowd, just as Paul did with this book. And then we can all hear, what is it that he's got to say? What is this Ehuangelion he's talking about? What is the gospel? Why is it good news? Right? It's not just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Like that's a, that's a kind of a truncation of this message. So like some of you, I've, I've read the commentaries. And if you have a Bible background, if you've been to church, if you've studied in, in Christian school or any of that, you've, you've listened to the commentaries and, and the top voices on the subject. And honestly, I, I'm really shocked when I look at the Bible interpreters 
who actually know better, but they deliberately alter the text of the Bible when they make a translation so that it fits the cultural narrative. And then they preach about against pastors who are trying to be culturally relevant. But the whole the scholars themselves are doing it. The translation itself fits a design. It's not speaking totality of what it is. And is that because we just can't figure it out? I don't think so. There have been a lot of smart people, much smarter than me, who've come a long way. The Bible's been around a long time. We've seen this before. It's just no one's talking about it. Why? Because if you're the pastor and you're saying something that the church fathers haven't said in your tradition, then guess what? You're going to be out of a job. You're going to be disowned. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to be told you're a heretic. And folks, that's not true. The revelation of God through the Spirit is showed that it's, it's, it's progressing. We are to know more now than we knew then. And that is the case. But then why did we stop in the 1500s and always reverse engineer everything back either to John Wesley or John Calvin or somebody else in some other tradition or Catholicism. See, the tribal versions we've been given have only divided and confused us further, and, and then we fight amongst ourselves. Is that what Paul wanted? I don't think so. That's the opposite of what Paul was doing in Rome. And so as we cover verses 18 through 32, I'm just going to highlight this first verse in, in verse 18, okay? says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Okay. All right. That's not, that's not difficult, Kev, to understand. Well, it's not until you realize the insertions that are in there. And the Greek makes this thing a little easier. I'm going to get into this later in some chapters, but there's like words like hadikion or dikaiosune or dikaiomenoi or all these things which are all the same root word because it's the same word. But when you read it in English, they, they change it. Or you have prepositions uh, like this we just read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Well, Against is only one option of about 30 in this word. And so that is profoundly shifting. I mean, think about what this is posturing here. And this is what I'm saying. The English gives you an illusion of something. But when you go to the Greek, that illusion disappears. And I'm going to try and show that to you. So the English translations use a lot of they or them or their Whereas the Greek uses less of such qualifiers. Like in Greek, they read more like the ones or those. Uh, and contextually, we can prove that Paul is not actually singling out any particular group, even as he highlights homosexual behavior in verse 26 and 27. That's only two verses, folks. So in those verses, He's using the, the, in all of these verses, he's using this landscape of the diverse forms of unrighteousness or wrongdoing, right? To reveal how our world has basically lost its way. And that's the question that everybody has. Like, why is the world such a mess? 
And throughout the text, Paul's thesis is that every person has been given over. And no one escapes this illusionary state of being. And while Paul doesn't use the term we, he does use the term O man in chapter 2 verse 3, which connotes a similar contextual anthropology. What does that mean, Mr. Big Word Kevin? What that means when he's using these terms is that you could read Paul as saying we, right? He uses a lot of they, them, there. Uh, it's really framed differently, but it's you can really infer this is a we. Now, you don't have to, and you don't have to get dogmatic about it either, but it, it helps you to kind of regain the ground that is lost in the translation. Now, Paul's terms... Wrath of God, unrighteousness, suppression of the truth. These all need definition. I mean, it's kind of like saying dog in English. Well, we all get a general understanding. We don't have a specific understanding because in my mind, I'm thinking Weimaraner. And in your mind, you're thinking German Shepherd, right? This is... This is what we get wrong. Like everybody is hearing it differently based on their own frameworks of understanding. And so the Greek word horge, which means anger or punishment or fury, really conjures up these notions of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But that term in that reference, it did, couldn't possibly have have been there for Paul, right? <laughs> Paul's theology, his framework for God, is not vindictive. Paul's understanding of God's justice is not retributive. It's not, it's restorative. It's not retribution. God, he doesn't see God as a super parent watching humanity with a stink eye, right? This is important because when the Sam Harris's and everybody else who casually reads the Bible reads this stuff, they're like, man, God is mad. God's ticked. Like God's like, you know, uh, family guy, you know, has <laughs> Seth McFarland drawing God as a sniper God with a rifle. And he's got a laser pointer. And he's pointing it out on sinners and he's taking the shot. <laughs> I love that metaphor because like we do, we have these sniper gods and then, a lot of times the Bible guys, they just double down on that one. The more furious and, and dangerous God is, the more they can dangle you over the fire, the more they can kind of pull you back with their solution of religion. So what is this all saying? Wrath is not a future event and thus a threat. Wrath is God's presence as an ongoing state of opposition toward everything that is false. It's an illusion. It's non-true. Now, where did I get all that? Well, I got that from years and weeks and months of pulling all of these Greek words and terms out that Paul is using. Like when it says heart, it's, that's the inner self, right? When, it's, when it says lie, it's, it's often, it, it really means falsehood. 
right? It's, it's ontologic. It's a state of your, it's your state of falseness. It's the false self. It's not saying you're lying and telling, uh, uh, it is, it's, it's a life as a lie. It's life as falsehood, right? So it's like, these are deeper, broader frameworks. So we're, we have to get out of religion's behavior modification threshold and get into the true biblical revelation, which is the state of your being. And your being in this framework today is that it's outside of the being of God. So Paul's theology isn't this vindictive super parent with wrath that's going to come to you in a future state because you did a bad thing, because of your naughtiness. God is perfect truth. And when we ignore, reject, or suppress this deeper and ultimate reality of God, which so many of us do today, we do so under an illusion of agency, as if we could ignore the truth. See, this suppression, this katexo, it, it prevents, it's a preventer or a controller of reality to make reality what we want it to be. See, this redefining of reality is called hadikayan, which means unrighteousness, unjust, wickedness. See, the key is to understand these terms not as specific behaviors, but as ontological, essential being or existence. These are ontological rebellion. So in other words, your true identity is found in God. Only God gets to say who you are. And he said, you are the beloved of God. But when we pull away and say, I don't want God defining me. I will define myself. I am my own person. I will do my own thing. Now we are in a state of being which is known as wrath. Wrath is this ongoing state of opposition towards our illusion of agency apart from God. See, in simpler terms, we reject our true identity in God. That's wrath. Now, you might be a little confused with some of that. I'm going to try and help you get to this better place. I have a great example, which I think will help you reshape your view of God from sniper to something else. Okay, but let's, let's kind of work through this. Therefore, God gave them up. We see this phrase repeated in verse 24, 26, and 28. The Greek word paradidomai means to give authority over, to grant. In other words, it, to those who exchange the truth of God for a pseudo, that's verse 25, word for word. See, God is granting us the experience of being in a state of opposition. Oh, oh, you want to you wanna play that? Okay, you can play that part. This wrath is not as the Puritans understood it, as God hating us, God objectly being opposed to us, but God in love actually allowing us to experience the cascading effects of living in an increasing conformity to our own illusions. <laughs> Think about this. Now, what image makes this work? So I, I came up with this one. Think of a, a, like a young boy who insists he is Spider-Man. Now, this was not hard for me because I used to love Spider-Man as a young boy. But suppose he gets his Halloween costume out and he puts it on and he just wears the costume all the time. And over the time of wearing this costume, 
like the delusions correspond to everything that is wrong in the world. And it's like at some point, like you're like, okay, are you going to be Spider-Man? Okay, great. Well, that's play, right? But then all of a sudden they want to try and eat with the mask on. And you're like, well, it's not going to really fit through that tiny little hole in your mouth. And nonetheless, the child is forcing the, the you know, the corn through the little hole. <laughs> it's like, and I'm insisting I'm Spider-Man. And they're going to double down on that until you finally believe them or go along with the charade. And so the parent in loving is saying, fine, go ahead, be Spider-Man. And you, you live in that costume. It's a piece of plastic and it's 95 out. You suffer the consequences of your costume. At some point, you're taking that thing off. I just know that as a parent. I hope that gets you closer to Paul, okay? What Paul is saying is his point is that we trade our true self for a false self. The word there is hasunatos cardia, verse 21 and 25. We exchange our creator for a created thing, verse 20, 23 and 25. What Paul is saying is we are punished by our sins, not for our sins. Wrath is not God getting mad at bad behavior and punishing the person. Wrath is revealed as our make-believe identity. That's what he says. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's, it's showing up like as our pseudonym and as our fictional characters spring every form of evil. Like everything that's wrong with the world comes out of our charade. That's what Paul's saying. It's amazing. And so Paul's most important point here is that in verses 1, 18 through 2, 12, he's taking a very diverse group of people, the Super Bowl audience, and, and each of us feels superior to each other as we look down on one another or judge one another. And, and he's revealing that we have all been given over. We are all equal in our unrighteousness, culminating in the junk drawer of everything that is wrong in the world. That's what you see in verses 29 through 32. It's a, it's a laundry list. It's the junk drawer of everything that's broken. And this is proven textually in chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, God shows no partiality. That's coming next week. But this idiom, to show no partiality, means that it means to accept the face. In other words, God accepts each face. God sees each true identity. God shows no favoritism. You're not treated better or worse than anybody else. Everybody is in the same illusion. Everybody has the Spider-Man costume on, but God sees who you really are. God sees through the costume. He doesn't put the religious costume above the worst of our costumes, i.e. homosexuality in Paul's framework. But it could be anything. And he does. He lists off a junk drawer. It is anything. Why? Because religious and non-religious were together, and the religious mind is always thinking it's superior to everybody else. And so he's literally lumping them in with the bottom of the cesspool as far as he could go in the culture. We could probably go further today. But Paul's starting point is all have sinned in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 12. And even today, the fundamentalists cannot see themselves within those they despise. That's what makes you a fundamentalist, is you think you're better. You think you used to be that person. You don't see a person and then see yourself in them. 
Now, in our Super Bowl audience, the metaphor here, we would just, and we still do, divide into opposing, opposite tribes. Each of us believing. It's, it's what Paul calls in verses 21. He says, worthless reasoning, our foolish minds, the lusts of our inner self. All of our framework for understanding things is jacked up. It's, we think that we're not as bad as those people. And Paul's point, which remains true today, is that everyone exchanges or trades the glory of God for an image. Verse 23. We, we take the truth for a pseudo. Verse 25. The creator for the created thing. Verse 25. We take what is natural for what is unnatural. Verse 26. And all of that is repayment. It's wages. It's recompense. We undergo with this heotoi with our themselves. It's, in other words, it's happening within us. That's where he says all of this repayment is happening within us. It's ontological, folks. So while he makes an example of homosexual behavior, contextually, and I have to say this because there's so many jerks in the world, but for the sake of foolish superiority, this is not a biblical justification for a position on the subject of homosexuality. You want to talk about homosexuality, that's fine, but leave Romans out of it. This is taught completely in the indicative mood, which means Paul is describing the state of reality. He is not prescribing a doctrine or a belief that would and does harm others. So preachers need to teach indicatives as indicatives and imperatives as imperatives. Full stop. Get your Bible right or stop preaching. In fact, the opposite comes to the surface as I'm illuminating this. You see, the grave sin is not any act of unrighteousness to be singled out. As Paul himself points out, there are many here. But the ontological state of unrighteousness, adikion, is due to our willful rejection of God in favor of our own fictional agency. And what is more fictional than the religious mind who thinks they are better or different or other than everybody else? The most lost soul in all of the revealed word of God is the religious mind. And Paul knows it, and that's why he's putting them right there at the bottom of the cesspool with everybody else. And I'm sure they didn't appreciate it any more than you do. So it's not just that we turn loose of God. It's that by doing so, we, tune loose, we turn loose of ourselves. And now that we have a world that doesn't know itself, we have a world that doesn't know each other. We have a world that doesn't know God. This is increasingly true for us today, don't you think? So, we've all been given over to our containers, our illusions, at the cost of our contents. See, no one really knows themselves. This is why we live in such confusion. Uh, we go to our therapist to try and find ourselves. We go on... Uh, world travel. We're going to discover ourselves. We're going, you know, this whole thing, it's illusory. None of those things out there are going to tell you who you are in there. Only God who made you gets to say that. 
And until you find yourself in Christ, as Paul is going to build this entire book upon, it's a lost cause. You live a delusion. Religion got this wrong when it says, if a person does a sin, he or she gets the wrath. Paul is flipping this script. Wrath is revealed by the suppression of the truth. In other words, when you give up on who you are in God, you live in wrath. Wrath is revealed at P, which is that preposition there, by, against, upon, for, right? The behavior. Wrath is revealed by the behavior. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Not the person. Back to the child insisting they're Spider-Man who won't give up the charade. The parent loves the child. The parent sees the child's face but gets annoyed. Like the parent's kind of like, okay, this is getting old. How long are you going to hold this out? You have a strong-willed child. You know that they can, they can keep the charade up a long time, <laughs> right? Others will say, okay, mommy, I'll take off the mask and be myself. That's the dynamic here. The parent who loves the child will get annoyed and make-believe won't last for that long. But if you make the make-believe last, it's going to be hard on the parent. Wrath is not placed on the beloved child. It's revealed as the behavior. The recompense here, the word, is that the payment is that everyone suffers from the behaviors behind our charades. So it's not like just you are suffering from you in your charade, in your charade of religion, your charade of irreligion, your charade of superiority, your charade of white supremacy, your charade of racism, your charade of whatever it is, idealization of the bottom, your charade of politics. Like everybody's got their fiction. And guess what? Your fiction doesn't just hurt you. It's ruining the world. It's stunting our growth. It's, it's collapsing upon itself. So what do we do? Turn to the government for a solution? Yeah, unfortunately, that's the stupidity we've gone to. The religious framework of wrath sending people to hell one day when you die because you did all your naughtiness is not even here in this text. It's not Paul, part of Paul's framework at all. We are just all given over to a pseudonym, the pseudo. So everything wrong in the world stems from this illusion that we are something we're not. And I, I challenge any listener to provide me an example where this is not the case. Show me some evil in the world and I will show you a pseudonym, somebody who does not know who they truly are. Thus, the correction to this problem is simple. You come to know who you are. Right? That's the good news. The good news is you can rediscover yourself. You can regain yourself in Christ, where we all are, whether you want to call it that or not. And then when you do, we regain the world. Now that is something to consider. So next week, Paul is going to reveal why his solution is actually the only one that really works. And I hope you'll come back to me. And I hope that uh, God will bless you as you contemplate all of these things.